it is that moment, my friends. Another Black History Moment with Bo. And this is Easter weekend. And I hope it finds you humble and realizing what the Easter weekend is to us. And for all of my friends that do not believe in this weekend, please give us the respect. I don't usually give shout outs, but this weekend I gotta give a shout out to all my friends and loved ones in Columbus, Ohio, in Bell Fountain, Ohio, in Delaware, Ohio, and of course, all my members of the 44307 gang, Westside Akron, Ohio. You know, it amazes me as I sit here in front of this microphone, how much our generation has contributed to this planet. We gave you everything. We gave you the microwave. We gave you the cell phone. We gave you the internet, which allows my voice to reach out to friends that I have not seen in 10, 20, 50 years. Yes, we are the greatest. We are the smartest generation to dawn this planet. But of all the contributions and advances we have made, the one thing that has eluded us is equality and justice. And without those two, none of the other really matter. Our history did not achieve it. And in 50 years, we will be the history of our children's children. And they will say the things that we should have done, but failed to do. Because right now, George Floyd's murder trial is going on. And there is not one of us that does not think that he could be acquitted. And that is because the score between acquittal and conviction is nowhere near close. We have seen acquittals over and over in our lifetime. And if this man should happen to be acquitted, we will do the same things. We will take to the streets and we will march and we will sing and we will protest and we will light fires. And the future generation will look at us and say, see, they did the same thing over and over. It's like once again, they took a baseball bat to a gunfight. I've said it before and I will say it again. The only way to win this war is to stop our dollars. And when we do that, we will stop the acquittals. My friends, it's time to slip into a little darkness. By the dawn of the 1970s, the civil rights movement had helped push the Supreme Court to declare segregation in public schools unconstitutional and led to the passage 
of significant laws like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlawed racial discrimination in public accommodations and employment. The Voting Rights Act of 1965, which prohibited discriminatory voting practices and the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which barred discrimination in housing, sales, rentals, and financing. But you know, racial equality was not achieved by passing the civil rights laws. The civil rights movement did not eradicate the narrative of racial difference and opposition to racial equality remained deeply rooted in the American way of life. Southern lawmakers who fought to maintain segregation and white supremacy remained in positions of power, and now they were aligned with Northern, Western, and national leaders who used new language like states' rights and law and order to maintain the old racial hierarchy. The evolution of voter suppression in the South and schools segregated in the North demonstrated that while civil rights activists won the legal battle, the cause of racial inequality once again won the narrative war. The Voting Rights Act literally changed the face of Southern politics by bringing widespread enfranchisement to black communities for the first time since Reconstruction. Just three years after the law passed, black voter registration in the South had increased by 1.3 million people. The greatest changes were in the states more targeted by the new law. In Mississippi, 60% of the eligible black voters were registered in 1968, up from just 7% in 1965. In Alabama, federal protection of black voting rights directly led to the ouster of Dallas County Sheriff Jim Clark. He lost in 1966 to an opponent who publicly denounced his mass arrest tactics. To stay in power as the South gained more than a million black voters, segregationists needed to suppress the black vote, so they began calling themselves conservatives and added more sophisticated tools to their repressive repertory. One tool was the voter fraud allegation welded in 1986 by then-United States Attorney Jeff Sessions against black voting rights activists in Alabama. Sessions targeted only black defendants, including civil rights icon Albert Turner, a former aide to Martin Luther King, who was beaten in Selma on Bloody Sunday. While critics pointed out that Sessions had targeted black people exclusively, he insisted, we will respond to any substantiated charge of vote fraud against whites or blacks. I know of no charges against white election officials in my jurisdiction. But Sessions was not responding to charges of voter fraud against the Marion Three. His office initiated the cases, 
because as Mr. Turner observed, I stand in the way of the white power structure. The voter fraud narrative remained a popular pretext for restricting and intimidating black voters and their advocates. Another tactic that became popular in the 1980s is voter caging. The practice of sending mail to addresses on the voter rolls, compiling a list of the mail that is returned undelivered, and purging voters on that list on the ground that they did not legally reside at their registered addresses. Proponents defended caging as a way to identify voter fraud, but Republican officials targeted Black and Latino neighborhoods for voter purges. In 1981, Internal Republican National Committee memo about caging in Louisiana read, I know this race is really important to you. I would guess that this program will eliminate at least 60 to 80,000 folks from the rolls. It is a close race, which I'm assuming it is. This will keep the black vote down considerably. A state judge later ruled that the program's clear intent was to remove African-Americans from the voter rolls. In the pre-dawn hours of December the 4th, 1969, Chicago police working with the FBI raided the Black Panther Party's local headquarters. Fred Hampton's personal bodyguard, William O'Neill, was an FBI informant and gave officers a floor plan before the raid. When the smoke cleared, Hampton and Mark Clark were dead, and four others had been seriously wounded. During the civil rights era, law enforcement targeted black leaders for arrests, surveillance, propaganda, and violence. Leaders of bus boycotts in Montgomery, Alabama, and Tallahassee, Florida, in 1956 were harassed, arrested, and fined. That year, the FBI launched COINTELPRO, a counterintelligence program focused on domestic threats, including civil rights activists. Black leaders committed to racial justice represented a threat to white supremacy and became targets of law enforcement harassment and attacks, even when they advocated nonviolence. Beginning in 1963, for example, Martin Luther King Jr. was the target of an intensive campaign by the FBI to neutralize him as an effective civil rights leader and to destroy his image as a potential messiah to unify black activists. And when a younger generation began to steer the movement in a different direction, Law enforcement repression intensified. Malcolm X, who believed it's criminal to teach a man not to defend himself when he is the constant victim of brutal attacks, was constantly surveyed by police up until he was assassinated in 1965. 
In July 1966, 25-year-old SNCC Chairman Stokey Carmichael gave a speech invoking Malcolm X's memory and advocating a self-determination policy of black power. And a few months later, two black men named Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale formed the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in Oakland, California. Spurning the tactics of marches, sit-ins, and boycotts, the Panthers founded youth centers and free breakfast programs and organized legally armed patrols to prevent police brutality. President Lyndon B. Johnson publicly condemned the concept of black power that the Panthers symbolized. The rise of militant black activism and its rejection by white stakeholders emboldened law enforcement officials to employ controversial and sometimes deadly tactics. In August 1967, the FBI officially directed COINTELPRO to expose, disrupt, misdirect, decredit, and otherwise neutralize black nationalist groups. In July 1969, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover named the Black Panther Party the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. Federal agents and local police engaged in harassment and raids that led to violent shootouts and the deadly ambush that killed 21-year-old Fred Hampton. An April 1970 poll however, showed that 75% of Americans blamed the Panthers for this police violence. So there you have it, my friends. What goes around comes around. As of today, we have a new militia out there. Another armed militia that is ready to protect our people from brutality. Can we not see this is one of the goals of the Panther parties of the 60s? Can we not see that we are in this vicious circle that goes around and around and around and we are still bringing a baseball bat to a gunfight? Can we not see that whiteness knows how we fight and that we must come to the center of the ring? with a new tactic. My friends, it's time for me to go. But I leave you with this thought. History, despite its wretched pain, cannot be unlived. But if faced with courage, need not be lived again. Until next time, it has been my honor.